two, one. Hello and welcome to another edition of Humanistic Perspective. As always, I am your host, Chad Castilla, and today I have the fortunate privilege of being joined with a very, very, very special guest. Let me give you a little background. He is an entrepreneur, a business mentor coach, and an author himself. I have the fortunate privilege today of being joined with Anwa Jumaboy. Anwa, thank you for joining me today. Chad, thank you so much for what a lovely introduction. And uh, I'm so pleased to be on your program. I mean, I think the two of us probably represent the workplace, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we're living in a time where, where we're seeing, you know, multi-generational workplaces. True. And it's probably the first time, for one of probably the first time in history that we have maybe four generations alive at the same time. Mm. So um, it's interesting. Yeah, I definitely. I, I especially think with the, you know, the advancements in modern technology, I saw statistically like people who were alive even in the 60s were just having an average lifespan of about 60 to 70 years old. And with modern technology, we've really seen that um, tremendous, a tremendous pace in the uh, elder age of the people who are alive. So I definitely think that's a, a very interesting dynamic. And I hope through uh, our experience today, we'll be able to highlight how the leadership of our elder generations and how Gen Z and all of us could coexist in a perfect atmosphere. I look forward to that. And, you know, we, we, have, we have both sides. I mean, the current debate is, you know, how do you hire and retain young people? Mm. And I keep telling, you know, people that I work with and people that I coach, you have to start thinking about, um, you know, how do young people cope with older people in their workforce? Mm. And, you know, that's a whole transition, right? Uh, it used to be your boss was five, 10 years older than you. Uh, your boss had five, 10 years more tenure in the organization than you. Sure. And today, uh, your boss might be younger than you and might have, you know, a one month tenure longer than you. <laughs> you know, it's really funny you bring that up because my brother, he's actually just turned 18 um, and he owns okay. his own non-medical emergency transportation company. And he is that ex- prime example of all of his exactly. employees are adults, but he is, you know, an 18 year old, but he's doing his thing and he's got good mentors on his side and a good board. So, yep. Yep. And, and I think that, you know, if you look at the way that sort of humanity has evolved and you know that's Mm. the subject close to you i think the core core value is one of respect Mm. and 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 i think we are returning and hopefully we are returning to that core value of respect which which as you know has to be earned right so we got away for many years you know through the, the the sort of mechanization era through to industrialization Mm. where respect went to the boss because he was more powerful than you Mm. Um, and 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 that in a way sort of distorted the word right so so it's great to be able to go back to sort of first principles i guess uh, and talk about respect and 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 i like and i and i sort of associate that with entrepreneurs because entrepreneurs don't have that or typically don't have that formal sort of education Mm. And and so they rely on on first principles, and entrepreneurs, you know, nef- naturally respect talent, right? They naturally respect capability. They nas- naturally respect independence, mm. and um, and this is what puts them ahead, right? 
Truly. Yeah, I believe your your insight is spot on with the entrepreneurial standpoint and mindset. Um, I would love to go back. Let's explore starting uh, with growing up in Malaysia. What I want to sort of understand the mechanisms that allowed you to become um, observant and build the person that stands before me today. Well, you know, I have a, I had a pretty normal and I would say privileged childhood, right? So, um, you know, I sort of went through school and, and um, you know, our education system is very much focused on remembering, right? Mm. So you, you, you have to remember, you have to repeat, and then you have to do your exams at the end of every year. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was a pretty much normal, comfortable lifestyle, which perhaps in a way left me not wanting for more. Mm. And then you sort of grow up and then you realize that um, there's a whole world out there and there's many experiences that that, uh, you have not had. Mm. And I think perhaps that's sort of prompted something inside me to seek out experiences. And, um, and so I've sort of had a very meandering life, right? So, you know, I tried to be a, a good old fashioned sort of child, go to university, get a job, work, you no, know, well, actually work the, work the summers while you're at university and get a job. And every day at the job, you think this is not really what I want to do. Sure. And, um, and I think that, those who know what they want to do are really quite fortunate mm. because naturally, I mean, you know, you, 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 in, in, in Asia, it's very common for parents to pay for the education of their children. Right. Mm-hmm. So you, you, we sort of have a sort of privileged position that when we graduate, we don't graduate with any student debt, mm. which is perhaps different uh, in America. But when you graduate, the obligation of course is, you know, get, get to work quick. Mm. Um, and so you sort of get to work and you put your nose down and you watch the world go around and, and two things happen, right? One is you realize that something's not right mm. and, and be, you know, with the, with the word, with the way the workplace is managed. And then you also realize that maybe this is not something you want to do. Mm. So those sort of, sort of fires get lit, right? So I started working in a shipyard in the United Kingdom, mm. which was uh, what we, what was called then and perhaps still exists. It's called a closed shop. So everybody who joins the, the shipyard has to join a union. Mm. And uh, so there's a union for, you know, electricians, there's a union for plumbers, a union for fitters. There was a union for, for people like me who were, you know, in the, on the engineering side. Mm-hmm. And the union's job was to look after everybody's interests. Truly. Yeah, that's uh, similar to uh, my backgrounds in music business. Um, and we have a union for all of our stagehands that come through. Uh, very similar setup there. Now, do you guys have the stereotypical union where, oh, breaks every 15 minutes? Or what's, what is the, uh, the common <laughs> yeah. conception of it? So, so this is the interesting thing, right? So you work in a shipyard and... Um, you know, you walk across, I mean, I was in the engineering side, but you walk into the shipyard and you see uh, a loose um, um, uh, pipe, you know, that's in the way and it might cause an accident. You're not allowed to touch it, right? 
because you don't belong to that union, right? So you have to call somebody from that union to, to manage it, right? <laughs> and it, it, it seemed like that world seemed to exist where everybody looked after their own interests. And you assume that if everybody looked after their own interest and collectively the interest of the organization, which is the one that pays the wages, uh, can earn a living, if everybody looks after their own individual uh, trades, that somehow collectively we would be okay, right? Mm. But what I began to see was that in looking after your own trades, you actually conflicted with conflicted with other trades or you you conflicted with the goal of the organization right and so these sort of silos which were very very distinct in a shipyard i mean today you you see that sometimes happening in organizations right you know you know my job is this and therefore i'm going to do this but you sort of step back and say but how does that make sense for an organization how does it make sense for all of us right so really? you have a customer problem and somebody says oh you can't rectify it because you don't have the budget or you can't rectify it because you don't have that authority, right? And, There's a prime and, example of this, I believe, uh, demonstrated in the American phone system with billing and with mm -hmm. uh, customer service. You get so often branched into a department and then they tell you they can't do something. And then the next department's rhetoric is completely opposite from the last one. That's right. That's right. And, and, and you know, this is, I, I think, something that stayed with me many years. So, Everybody got so involved in their own little compartment that you mm. sort of, and you know, because it was alien to me, right? And and so I was coming in and, and I was observing this and there were two of us from the university who joined. Probably the first time in, I don't know, 10 years they had recruited any young engineers. Wow. And, and both of us used to sit in the office wondering, you know, is this real, right? Is this really happening? And, and, uh, and everybody was comfortable and you're right, you know, the, we had a guy who was in charge of printing uh, the plans, you know, so you, you build, you, you, in those days, because it, there was no, there was no computer. All analog used to, work. Yeah, used to hand draw and then, and then the print man used to print it. <laughs> and of course, um, he was in charge of the print shop. Mm. And if he didn't come to work, I mean, if John didn't come to work, then it was just yards. tough luck. Yeah. <laughs> you can't print, right? Sure. And, 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 and John was very proud of, of his, the job. He did an excellent job. Um, was a lovely guy. Mm -hmm. But essentially, it meant that if he didn't come to work, you couldn't print anything, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because, I mean, A, nobody knew, and B, you were not allowed, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it just became a very strange environment. And, you know, Chad, I'll tell you, I, I, I left the shipyard after about a year and a half and I moved to Singapore. And I worked in a shipyard in Singapore, which was in comparison, mm. maybe 20 years behind, right? So in the UK, it was a nice covered dock. We had a nice, lovely building. You know, we uh, all sat isn't there. Isn't that where you worked with uh, Charlie, correct? Correct. That's right. And, and, and so we had a lovely office and, you know, and then I moved to Singapore and um, because I interviewed with this company and they said that, oh, we've decided it, it was a group, right? So they, they owned a repair business and they also owned the shipbuilding business. In those days, a rig building business. And so they said, oh, 
we're going to send you to the rig building business. And I had never actually been there physically, right? I'd gone to Singapore for an interview. I interviewed in the, in the corporate office and I have no clue of what the shipyard looked like. Mm. And so I sort of go up on the first day of work and I'm thinking to myself, okay, um, this is just a piece of sand along the river. And there are some sheds and our office is in the canteen, which has been converted to an office. Was this a union shipyard or was this non-union? Not at all. So not at all. Mm. So in Singapore, there, 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 was no, there was no union. And, and we were, I would say, in comparison to the UK, we were prehistoric, right? Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> <I> truly. Mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, uh, you know I, I, it was a bit of a culture shock, right? So you come to work mm. and then at, um, at 12.30, all the lights go off. And you think, okay, what's going on here? You know, this is lunch break. So at 12.30, you turn off the lights, put, some, put a large plan on your desk, put your feet up and go to sleep. Because you had an hour for lunch and a nap, and and it's beautiful. that was. <laughs> I think they've stopped that now, but yes, so it was and 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 so we we so what happened was that not so long after I joined, we had a, what is called a national observance ceremony. Right, it's sort mm-hmm. of like your Fourth of July, but but in Singapore it's no fireworks, and because we were a large organization. You, we, we, we had the privilege of hosting a very senior deputy minister for the national flag raising observance ceremony, right? So, wow. because we, we had a lot of people, so he came. And uh, so, you know, we were all lined up in the morning. And, you know, the good thing about Singapore is everything runs on time, so you don't have to worry. Nice. Um, if, you know, if it was in Malaysia, we'd be sitting there one hour later. We'd be <laughs> <to wake up. laughs> but in Singapore... And he comes there and he says, essentially what he says is, guys, you are a sunset industry. You uh, need too much labor and your productivity is too low. And so if you can't survive in Singapore, then it's okay, close down. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, I mean, this is interesting. If this this had happened in the UK, we would have probably stoned him. We wouldn't have got out alive. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the in the UK the shipyard was owned by the government. It's nationalized. Sure. Uh, in in Singapore it's it was a, it was a uh, owned by, indirectly by the by the government through a um, through a holding structure. But it was essentially a government owned company. Got it. Uh, a public and uh, it became a public company. Mm. And uh, so we we sort of looked at each other and say, okay, I mean this is interesting. Now if you're a naval architect, and the shipyard closes down, there ain't that many jobs for you. <laughs> Sure. You know, so, um, and so we, 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 you know, everybody just decided that they needed to upgrade, right? So we bought computers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the guys who was uh, in the engineering department uh, decided that he would become head of IT. Um, nice. And we, 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 we upgraded our skill sets and we worked together. And nobody came to us and said, oh, guys, you know, um, the ship is sinking. We've got to find a way to keep it afloat. We just naturally reached into what I would say would be our entrepreneurial roots, right? And said, okay, mm-hmm. what can I do? And it's collectively, int- everybody says that. Yeah, it's interesting because it almost seems as if you guys, 
as a collective, we're inspired to take on the task yourselves. It, it's, it's not as if you needed a superior. Um, the culture itself had already built in the desire, the human innate ability to want to achieve the project at hand. And, and I think part of it comes from the competitive nature, right? Mm. So, and, and it's in, again, if you compare it to entrepreneurs, because entrepreneurs typically continually exist in a competitive environment, <laughs> um, <laughs> they, they, they continually are looking for how to do it better, how to do it differently, um, you know, experiment. And, you know, they, these are all things that entrepreneurs do. And, and, and so we went through this whole period and, uh, you know, you, you're, you're fortunate to work for, as you say, you know, your, your brother has mentors. So, you know, I had two, two great mentors, you know, one was Yik, who was the head of our engineering department. And he was so cool and so calm. And I used to, you know, as a young guy, you get agitated. So we got to decide now, 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 you know, come on, we got to do this. We got to do this. We got to do this. And in those days, you could smoke in the office, which was interesting. Uh, nice. Uh, there you go. <laughs> Dang. Different times, huh? <laughs> different times. And, and, and so you'd go in and have a chat with Yik, and he's like, you know, we're going to decide. And, and the first question he'd ask you is, when do we need to decide by? And if it wasn't today, then you say, why, why do we have to decide today? Right? And, and so that was a learning. And you mentioned Charlie, and Charlie was this amazing sales guy. And, you know, organizations survive really if they are able to sell. I mean, there's no other way of surviving, right? And Charlie had just amazing ability to connect with people. Mm. And so we built rigs for the Russian. We were always building for the Americans. Sure. And then, you know, uh, because of the embargo, we started building for the Russians, we built for the Indians, we built for the Swedes. We started finding business everywhere in the world. Mm. And at one point, there was an, a Russian, there was an embargo on uh, American products going to Russia. Mm. And so, you know, typically a rig is built out of American suppliers, right? All, most of the equipment comes out of the U.S. because the U.S. is where, you know, sort of oil drilling, Drake discovered uh, in, I don't know, 1850s or so. Sure. Um, so we had to scramble and look for equipment that wasn't American. Mm. And, and we did all that, right? So as, as you're saying, it's sort of a collective. And nobody really sits down and says, hey, guys, um, you know, if we, we, we need to do this, we just had tasks and we went about it. And probably at the back of the mind, we realized that if we were not successful, we'd all be out of a job, mm. right? And, and so, again, that relates to, you know, being entrepreneurial, right? sort of the caveman, you know, if I can't find uh, meat today, we're going to starve. And if we starve, we die, right? Because there ain't nobody coming to help us. Um, really. and, and that mentality, again, you know, as you say, the sort of the humanistic, it's not always bad. It's a good thing, right? Mm. It's a good thing to, to feel that, yes, you need to do something. And, and Chad, I'll tell you this. After I, eight years after I left the shipyard in the UK, it closed down. Mm. Wow. Some, I don't know, 40 years after I left the shipyard or 35 years after I left the shipyard in Singapore, it's still there. Wow. What do you, right? what do you uh, account for that one being there versus the UK one not being there? 
I mean, I think, okay, there, there, are, there are different levels, right? So if you say that, let, why do I have a mindset that I need to do something to save myself? Mm. Where does that come from? And that's something that I, I don't think is a clear answer, right? Sure. So in, in the UK, it was, I have got a job, I have a salary, I have a union, and it's the union's job to protect my job. Mm. Right? Um, where does that come from, right? right. In, 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 in Singapore, it was, if I don't have a job, I, I, I don't have a job. I mean, it, 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 I don't have a, pay, uh, what do you want to call it, uh, um, out-of-work out benefit scheme. Mm. Uh, so that's it, right? So where does, where does this desire to excel come from? I mean, where, what about you, Chad? Where, where, does that, where does it come from for you? You know, that's fascinating. And that's something I've, been contemplating on a lot i think intrinsically what motivates me the most is my my ability at the end of the day to be doing whatever i choose and deem makes me happy because i understand that when i'm in the happiest state i yes. am the i am the most useful to the people around me and all of a sudden i start living for an intrinsically selfless reason because the most okay. important thing of having the base ground for myself is there so for me i would say uh a lot of that comes through and is shown through just cognitive curiosity my most important thing the thing that i um the thing that honestly on the fourth of july when i was thinking about my independence the thing that i cried about the most was the freedom to explore and to learn and the idea that there was potentially people in this world that are living right now and don't have the means or don't even understand uh, what it's like to have the freedom to explore and choose to do and pick mindsets that you want for yourself and so at the end of the day I guess that existential crisis towards having that freedom to do that is what pushes me and drives me to choose the crafts that I choose. But I never really am worried or see it's, it's fascinating because my background was um, I, I came from a pretty poor family. We, we face a lot of adversity um, and, and it was a, it was a tough environment to grow up in, but it motivated you and pushed you because it's funny. You say that I was going to ask the nature versus nurture part of being an entrepreneur, yes. because I feel like a lot of my personal experience and upbringing for me and my brother, it pushed us in two separate directions. For me, it took me and I built that entrepreneurial spirit to go out and try and learn and use as much of the knowledge as I could to uh, show and perform because that's sort of what my background was. That's what I love to do. But for him, yes. that same experience, that same uh, visualization, you know, having the water turned off when you're young, being through all those same experiences forced him to grow up immediately and want to provide for the family and help pay for the bills and take over. And so it's really it's really interesting that you, you bring that point up. And I, I would say, when I was younger, a lot of my reason and pushing was to get out of what I thought my experience I was having was. But now as I get older, it's just having the ability and the freedoms to be me and continue to explore and to become accepting of the world in which I'm living in and choosing to uh, to explore. Yeah. You know, Chad, the, you, you bring up some fascinating points, right? So there are two, two different things that that strike me, right? So one is there are only two motivators for humans, right? 
So the, there are only two motivators. If you strip everything down and ask people, like for example, in sessions that I do, you know, why do you come to work? And you know, they start with, oh, I, I, uh, you know, I, I want to pay the bills. I want to have the, the, the relationships, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And 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 you sort of boil it down and you say, okay, but really, what is it that drives you, right? And there are only two drivers, right? There is the pursuit of pleasure, mm. so that motivates you to go somewhere. And then there's the avoidance of pain. Mm. So there are only two motivators. And if you break it down, and of course, if you see that in the workplace, and actually you see that in your daily life, right? Mm. So sometimes in the day you might say, oh, I'm not going to have the candy bar because you are afraid of the pain, right? And, right. and other times you might say, you know, I'm going to go and um, um, pitch for this and get this get this revenue because you want the pleasure, right? So in the day also, you know, it goes up and down. So sometimes it's pain, avoidance, and sometimes it's pursuit of pleasure, right? Mm. So, so it, you know, perhaps the, 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 the drivers in your family, in your brother, the, the past probably caused more pain mm. or felt he felt more pain and therefore the desire to not feel that pain was very very strong right yeah. and, and you see that in 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 immigrant and refugee community communities mm. right they're the ones who are very successful because it's so close to having nothing right they know what it's like to have nothing that when they have a chance to accumulate they're so afraid of losing it that they just want to accumulate <laughs> Yeah. And 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 that's a driver, right? Because they know is. that it could be could be taken away. It has been taken away in the past, right? Yeah. And so you they they want to accumulate, and then of course when they get to a certain point, then they want to avoid risk. But yeah. but so entrepreneurs are driven sometimes by this uh, pain pleasure, right? So the, 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 that that gives them drive to win. Mm. And the second thing I wanted to ask you is that. We all want to do things that we enjoy, that we get energy behind. Where does the moral compass come from? Because some of those things mm. um, that we enjoy may, may not be enjoyable to the people around us. <laughs> Truly. You know? Yeah. Um, so, so, so you've got this meeting of your desires with that sense of, is it right or wrong? Right? I mean, there's a huge debate now when you see, you know, uh, Richard Branson's gone up to space and, oh, and yeah, the billionaire uh, space Be race. Yeah, Jeff Bezos has gone up to space, and 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 a lot of people are asking, but then why is there poverty in the world? Why can't they, you know, put some muscle and and resources behind that? I mean, it's not their obligation to solve the world's problems, True. but it is a fair it, it is a fair question, right? It is. Um, can we, can we, or should we direct where energy is, uh, and uh, where where energy is put? I, I I don't know. It's a it's a difficult question. Truly, I wanted to ask. Um, could you break down a little bit of the managerial science? What is what what encompasses that? Who are some philosophers that you subscribe to that understand managerial science that helped you sort of um, explore the topic yourself? Sort of, how does your um, personal experience with that? look like so you know whilst i i sort of did an mba and studied management 
I've never been a fan of uh, a toolbox approach, right? Mm. So you have this problem, you open this toolbox and you go to the, you know, um, you know, Drucker is, is considered, uh, Peter Drucker is considered the sort of grandfather of, of management. And Drucker himself, if you read his work, also talked about the importance of entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial thinking, right? Mm. But it pushed management in a direction where people are machines. Mm. And therefore, you need to manage machines. And, and so we had a whole period of time where when you hired somebody, the manager's job was to get productivity out of them. And, and you, so, so we went through a whole period of management where it was all about productivity and how do you get productivity out of people and treat people basically as, as robots, mm. you know, make sure they sit correctly, um, manage their time, manage their resources, uh, manage their output, you know, make sure the reporting is all set and, yeah. and done. And so we went through that period and I, I found it fascinating, this time in motion stuff. And then you go on and you later on and you see, you know, people like um, Stephen Covey, who, you know, really talks about the abundance mindset and, you know, how you can free up people to get more. Mm. And so I don't have a particular mentor, but I, I read a lot and I like to read biographies of business people. Mm. So, you know, where, and I read, I guess, most of the modern, modern uh, titans from, you know, Phil Knight to, uh, of, of, of Nike to, you know, every, everybody's story, a Ray Kroc from McDonald's. Um, Do you have one uh, that particularly you're, you're fond of or someone you look up to the most out of those stories? I guess it would be Stephen Covey, right? So I had the privilege mm -hmm. of seeing him uh, live and, and he came across with a concept which I found really, I guess, mind-blowing in a sense right mm. and 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 basically he said that you you've got to change your mindset from you know the the sort of bowl concept right the bowl means that there's only a limited amount of food and therefore whoever grabs it first eats and the who doesn't grab it doesn't mm. and 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 he sort of said that well what about thinking about enlarging the bowl and and Mm. And I think that that's a concept that that for Asians, we are coming a little later to that because we are closer in terms of history to our poverty, mm. right? So we are closer, we still have, you know, one generation that remembers what it was like to be poor. Mm. And, and so there's always this concept of, of you know, You've got to protect yourself. You've got to take care of your family, etc. And, and and I think those sort of primordial comes, uh, drivers yeah. um, are sometimes sometimes stay right. So there's a wonderful book called The Cathedral and the Bazaar. I think it's called uh, yes, The Cathedral and the Bazaar. And it talks about how the open source movement was built, and it it basically talks about how you have a directed organization. And the example it gives is uh, of Encarta. And, you know, Microsoft spent all this money to produce all these research to books, et cetera. Mm. 
And then uh, Wikipedia came about and they built the whole um, wiki site without paying any money. And these wow. are people who are willing to volunteer their time because they felt that it was good for people to have knowledge and um, why not share it, right? It doesn't cost them anything. And, and you have a very famous president, I think, uh, uh, who said, I think it was, I can't remember which, which president it was, but basically he said that by the light from my candle by illuminating others doesn't take away the light from me. Mm. And and uh, and so, I like that. We we have this very strange mix of of emotions, right? Uh, if you do something, is it taking away um, from somebody else? So you know, <clears throat> and in modern day, you can equate it to, you know, if I find a supplier who is really ace and puts my business ahead, am I willing to share that supplier with my competitors? <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> you know, I found this really great supplier and uh, am, am I going to tell everybody, right? So, so, so this sort of plays out and we come back to the workplace, you know, the, 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 this whole thing about people being robots happened in the US in the automotive industry in the 1960s, right? Mm-hmm. 1960s, 1970s. Yep. Uh, way, was it Henry way... Ford, the assembly line, the creation of that? Yeah, but then after the assembly line, you had General Motors mm-hmm. who came about and General Motors became, and, and there are large parts of the US where until the 70s, you had a lot of people on the shop floor, right? So the labor mm-hmm. content in 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 a in a in a car factory was huge, and the car car unions are very powerful unions, right? Mm-hmm. And then suddenly you had you know Toyota, Volkswagen come up come with very heavily automated, robotized mm-hmm. uh, factories. And today, if you see the Tesla factory, you can see videos of it. I mean, you know, the it's old story of. Yeah, I mean, in the old story of, you know, the factory has a dog and a man and, and you say, you know, what's the man's job? And the man's job is to look after things. And what's the dog's job? The dog's job is to make sure the man doesn't touch anything. <laughs> That's how uh, I, I had a good friend named Jake. Um, he was working at Amazon and he quite literally, he, he, he could manage the work, but it was the actual atmosphere of automation. And the fact that all he did was talk to packages and move yes. in one single spot and he had to run from his spot to the bathroom and back just to you know be within the time frame of the automated system yes it, it it was it was so um disheartening and so it was so demoralizing from what that human experience of having a coexisting atmosphere and working towards an objective within a company it was it was crazy to to see him get to the point where he wanted to leave just because frankly there was no human interaction i wanted to ask you um how does this entrepreneurial mindset and everyone sort of evolving and becoming a part of that interplay with the future of automation? Well, you know, so before I get to that, let me, let me tell you a story of three companies, right? Mm. So they are the three leaders in the industry. There is one leader who says, we're all about knowledge. And we are going to explore knowledge and we are going to empower our people to chase down their dreams, to chase down their own projects, 
And we're quite happy to fund exploratory stuff. And But mm-hmm. at the same time, we want customers, right? So there's this company that what I would call cerebral exploratory mindset, right? And then there's another company that says, we're all about selling, you know, just give us a product and we'll sell it because we just know how to sell, right? And we are great at selling. Um, and, and we have this whole lovely structure of incentive schemes and, you know, nobody reports to more than 10 people and we cascade Sounds like down. an insurance company. Well, let me ask you that in a minute. So we have the second company that's a selling expert. And then we have a third company which says that, oh, we're going to be the cost leaders. So everything that we're going to do, we're going to look at the cost and we're going to squeeze out every dime we can and make sure it's the most super efficient company. Mm-hmm. So you have a company that exploratory, you have a company that's sales oriented, and you have a company that's uh, cost driven. These are three companies. And these three companies are number one, number two, number three in the industry, okay? And they are global companies and they all play in the web services game. Okay. Now, which company do you think is the one that's the, 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 the one that's focused on cost? It's, it's Amazon, right? Right. And, and which company is the company that's focused on selling? It's Microsoft. And which mm-hmm. company is the company that's focused on exploring? Apple. It's Google. Well, it's good in, in, in the web services, right? So we, yeah, we just talked about cloud, in cloud cloud computing. Then they, these are the three leaders. They're completely different DNAs, right? Right. And, and you can see it. So Google will always talk about, oh, the analytics that we can bring to you. And if you're our customer, then, you know, we'll help you with this. And, you know, we're developing that, et cetera, et cetera. And Microsoft is, you know, we're just super efficient. And, you know, we'll make sure that, you know, and Amazon has come to us because we, we, we will make sure that we save you every dime that you can. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you come with, so you, you've got the sort of, and the entrepreneurial mindset works in all three areas, right? Sure. But there is an overarching DNA or, or embedded into the company. And, and everybody there goes with the program. Right. So this sort of, I mean, as I say, life is, life is not simple, right? Get used to it. Um, and, and you're going to have these complexities. Hmm. So, yeah, it's interesting to see, you know, the entrepreneurial mindset can work in all these areas. So in, in the case of Amazon, they probably get more excited if you find a way of um, uh, making things faster and better. Whereas in, in Google, they might get more excited if you found some you know, new product line or, or et cetera. And, and Microsoft would be more excited if you, you know, found a way to sell more, get more customers. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you have these, these, these personalities. But you know, to your question on automation, what's happening, what happened in the 1960s and 1970s in the automotive industry where they drove people out? Because you had, you know, if you imagine the wage curve, if you are, if you are less skilled, you obviously earn less money. If you're highly skilled, you earn a, a lot more money. And what was happening in, in, in the automotive industry in America, there was an aberration. Mm-hmm. There were mid-skilled people who were earning a lot of money. And by rights, that shouldn't have existed. Mm-hmm. But you know, it was a history of, of unions, et cetera. So you had mid-skilled people that were earning $20, $22 an hour. 
And then automation came, those jobs disappeared. And to earn $20, $25 an hour, you had to be high skilled. Right. So a lot of mid-skilled people just fell off the boat and they're sitting there wondering what happened, right? And their jobs got taken away by automation mm. and, and AI. And what's happening today in the workplace is the same thing, same phenomenon is happening in, uh, in, in the workplace. Mm. So you find a lot of mid-level managers who aren't really contributing very much but mm. have now become sort of overpaid and mid-skilled. And those jobs are being eaten away by, by automation. And those guys are struggling. And there's a very large, wide band, right? Mm. So there's a wide band of people who are struggling in the workplace because their jobs are not that important anymore. They can be replaced by technology. So there's a whole generation of people who, who might be in their 30s or 40s or, 40s or, or 50s who are gatherers of information. You know, they gather information, they repurpose it. And, you know, today that, that's not required, right? Information goes straight through. Everybody has a dashboard. Everybody knows what's going on. Right. And so there's big disruption coming uh, in the workplace, which is something that you have to worry about, right? And to, to your point about being humanistic, you don't need to hire people from down the road. Mm. You can hire people from all over the world. Um, is that morally a right thing to do? For who? For you? For the country? You know, what, how are countries going to respond sure. when you can have any employee you want working anywhere in the world? What happens to the guy down the street? I mean, there's a limit to, you know, how many physical resources you need. Mm. Um, and so it's a dilemma going forward, right? Truly. Truly. I wanted to ask, what is the current economic landscape of Malaysia and what is that like? We are a country that in the 80s was considered uh, of high growth. Mm. So in the 80s, you know, Korea, Malaysia, Singapore was considered high growth because it was a period of uh, manufacturing. So that was a point where a lot of labor was required and we were the sort of manufacturing hub. And, you know, whether it was refrigerators or air conditioners, um, you know, China had, was not yet, had not yet emerged. And therefore, a lot of that manufacturing took place in Malaysia. And then over a period of time, of course, factories got bigger in China and then that sort of got eroded. Uh, but we were left with semiconductor and glove manufacturing. So semiconductor and glove manufacturing is still very big in Malaysia. I think today, uh, Malaysia produces 60% of the global gloves. Wow. Um, so glove making is, and it traditionally was because we had rubber. But today, the gloves don't have really any rubber content. They're nitrile gloves. But that, that, that um, years of experience of how do you do you know, manufacturing of, of rubber, with, uh, rubber gloves, which is a very fragile product, has become embedded. And there, there are maybe four or five companies in Malaysia that are, that are very good at this. And they've become sort of the global suppliers. So Malaysia's done well in that respect, but 
Malaysia also suffers from what we call a sort of middle income trap, right? Mm. You, you, you built on the back of manufacturing, low cost labor, but, but labor has become such a small component of a product today that low cost labor doesn't really mean anything. Mm. And today, you know, companies are looking for, for talent, right? They're looking not just for labor. And so a lot of companies and countries are stuck in this middle income trap. I don't have the expertise and the talent pool to go to high end. I'm too expensive to, to survive in, in, in the, as a low cost manufacturing center. So it's a, a little stuck. Uh, you know, the Koreans have taken off, uh, the Taiwanese have taken off because of their long history in the semiconductor industry. Um, and, and so they've, you know, we used to joke about the, the fridges that would talk to the phones. And, you know, today you have, uh, you have cups that can talk to the phone, right? Literally. So if you, if you have a coffee cup, you put it in a, in a holder and you can use your phone to say, you know, start heating up now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so all this technology is suddenly coming alive and has practical use. I mean, I don't know whether heating up coffee is, but you know, many years ago, you could start and heat up your car, right? From your, from your key, right? You could say, you know, you could get your car to start up in the winter so that it would be warm when you got to it. And then that's what happens with innovation and technology, right? There is one use case and then nothing happens for ages and ages and ages. And then suddenly there's a whole bunch of use cases, right? You can turn on the fan, the light, heat up a coffee, the air conditioner. But it took forever. It took forever from that one use case of I can start my car in the winter and nobody thought about, oh, what else can I do? Right. And, 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 and that's, the, that's the thing about innovation, right? And that's where entrepreneurs come in. You, you, think about the, you think about the trolley bag. I think the trolley bag, you know, the bag with the wheels on it that you pull around, everybody has one now. Mm-hmm. I think the first bag with wheels came up, was sold um, in a department store in the US in the 1970s. But for years, people said that you carry a bag and if you don't want to carry it, you put it in a trolley, on a trolley. And you, you, you would see trolleys going by and you'd see people carrying bags going by. And it's lovely to watch those old movies, right? People come off the plane and they carry... <laughs> Everybody's carrying their suitcase, right? You wonder how the hell they get away with such a light suitcase. But anyway... Seriously. Um, uh, you, you, you see these trolleys and you see... The, and, and nobody said, let's put these two things together and put wheels in on, on the bag, right? So sometimes we stare at stuff and we think, hey, why didn't I... I mean, it becomes obvious you know, when you, when you look back, but at that time, it's not so obvious. Right. I mean, the other great example I give to people is look at the gift bag, you know, wrapping paper existed for eons. Mm. So did, um, so did carrier bags, right? So you, you wrap a gift and then you put it into a carrier bag. And then somebody came up one day with gift bags. I, I'd love to know who it was, but it's brilliant, right? You don't have to wrap the gift anymore. You put the gift in the gift bag, put a bit of crepe paper on the top, and it's a fully wrapped gift that you can carry around. Really? Otherwise, you spend all this money wrapping your gift and you put it in a brown paper bag. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in your opinion, the people who have that mindset and can make those observations and then key in on them and create innovations, 
do you believe that they are they are more observant people or that they are just more naturally innovative people like they're more engineers or are they yes i i think both work okay so there there are some people who observe something and think this can't be the way to do it mm. and and therefore come up with a better way of doing it right and then you have another bunch of people who have some experience with a problem and realize there is no solution for it and then create the solution so you have both sides of both types of people you have the people that create the solutions mm. and then you have people who recognize the gaps and and try and fill that gap so i think both 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 types of people exist i think that the entrepreneurs that are most successful are the ones that yeah. build on competence mm. so the ones that start with some competence and perhaps start something not for the purpose of solving a major problem but solving a small problem and it snowballs right and right. then as you develop customer iterations then your product gets better and better and better mm-hmm. i mean look at the the look at uh, um, you know steve jobs when he launched the the iphone right yeah i mean it wasn't a great product and that's why you know ceo of of nokia i think uh, oli pecker at the time laughed at it <laughs> because i think that the the brilliance of the entrepreneur vis-a-vis the existing company is the entrepreneur realizes that the ground that he is standing on is not stable and therefore he continually has to shift and he has to evolve he has that mindset now if you say that he does he have that mindset because of what reason i mean there are many reasons right it could be he has that mindset because he uh, is afraid of failing he's afraid of you know losing everything so he has that mindset of of fear right we sure. talked about the two the two drivers but entrepreneurs typically don't stay static and the ones that say i have a business model and i'm going to launch it are the ones that fail the ones that are so successful are the ones who have this naturally evolving view of the world evolving view of the customer and they tend to evolve the companies unfortunately don't have that because they're so focused on cost and structure and procedure and mm. you know you got to do it this way because we did it 100 times this way and super litigious yeah i mean you know and it has its purpose but this is the this is the the beauty of entrepreneurs right they understand when you can be flexible when you need to be flexible and so companies get so taken by explaining to you why you can't do something and the entrepreneur mindset is really about what you can do and that's why i tell people that entrepreneurs are not different people right mm. they just do things differently and it's everybody can do that stop mm. what you're doing if it doesn't make sense mm. ask yourself is this contributing to a better customer experience is it contributing to more revenue and if it isn't then there's something wrong sure and 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 large companies don't ask this question mm. they just think that it will continue and partly it's because you know i mean i i don't know they i i i think 
and, and that's one of the reasons why why was you know what drove me to write the book that there has to be a better way to manage a company True. because when things go awry it's never the guys at the top who pay the price it's always the guys at the bottom mm. you know let's close down this division let's downsize let's it's never hey i'm a terrible boss i made these decisions maybe i should go <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to uh, touch with the with the book, uh, Nine Entrepreneurisms. Is there one specific of the nine traits that you had to contemplate on the most or took the most brain power or the one that maybe surprised you the most while writing the book or the one that was, you know, the most elaborate process wise for writing? I think that there, 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 there isn't really. So the, okay. the nine, you know, we started with, we interviewed over a hundred people. We, we started with a whole bunch of, you know, what are the traits or practices of successful entrepreneurs? And then we sort of whittled them down to um, these nine. And I think, mm. the, you know, these nine are the ones that are, are relevant uh, and are learnable. And that's why we say that, you know, it's a practice for a VUCA world. Uh, the one that people come up to me is uh, they say, you know, you, you, you didn't talk about drive and grit and determination. And, and the, our response is really, but that's what, the, that's what passion does. So passion drives you to do things, right? It's an after so passion. Mm. It's an after. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and the same thing, people say, oh, why do you have learning in there? And, and learning is the same thing. I mean, there's no point knowing something if you can't uh, incorporate it, in, uh, act on it, right? Mm. And, and if you look at the most successful companies, they're constantly learning. They're learning what how their customer preference is moving. They're learning how their people are moving. They're learning how to do things better. And so learning is, learning is, is something that's, you know, if you have innovation, it's pointless if you don't learn. You know, as, Be as Jeff Be Bezos famously says, right? You need to experiment all the time. Right. Because you don't want to be in a position where you have to have to make a sort of Hail Mary bet, right? Which is yeah. where... <laughs> I think that right. is highlighted often too in... Uh... People are always like, oh, no, they're wasting money. A rocket blew up and it failed during a test. But I would argue that that's actually more important. By it failing and going through that experience, you can calculate that and then determine for that risk. I don't think that that crash was a waste, actually. I think rather that that's a learning opportunity and a fantastic experience. And that's exactly what Elon Musk said, right? When, when, when he left, when the rocket landed and then exploded and he said, whoa, that was an amazing experience right yeah. um so so it is you know we 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 learn the most from things that go wrong mm. right and it's like i tell people that when you you know if you have a child uh, your child or any of you 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 don't tell the child hey little one don't start walking you can't do it yet <laughs> I mean, I mean that's that would be like silly, right? Yeah, yeah. And and then when the child tries and falls, you say, "Oh my gosh, that was a failure! Don't do it again, Sunny. Don't do it again." Right? 
So, so these are these these are these practices that somehow in an organization we we don't reflect on it. We don't. We, we don't. I mean, nobody got up and started walking. I mean, apparently Buddha Buddha did that because yeah. Buddha, they, the Buddhists feel that you know. I think on the seventh day, Buddha uh, got up and walked. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, for us average normal people, uh, we we meander along. Right? We 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 try, and you know, the guy who invented uh, Dyson, the guy who invented the bladeless fan, mm-hmm. um, I and love the vacuum, Dyson commercials. That, Some of the yeah. best commercials. And and Dyson, I think, says that he went through 5,700 prototypes in order to get it right. Wow. Um, and if you read James Dyson's story, uh, he, he, he did, you know. He, he did the first commercial sale he had of his Dyson vacuum cleaner because nobody wanted to sell the vacuum cleaner because it didn't have a bag. And most of the vacuum cleaner manufacturers made money from the bag. And so he only he found somebody in Japan who actually main business was selling filofaxes. I mean, I, I don't think you remember what a filofax is, but it's this really nice diary which comes with clips and you can insert pages and, and dividers, etc. Wow, it was I meant to organize your those. Yeah, it was well, it was it was in the days before you had Google Calendar and, yeah. and Workflow and <laughs> sure. but but he found somebody in in Japan who who believed in it and, and he started selling the product. And of course, then he came back to uh, UK and US. But yeah, I mean, you get these um, moments of brilliance that are are driven by people who take their experience as a learning experience, right? Mm -hmm. And and that's what happens in large companies as well, right? They get too used to saying, oh, that was a fail. Mm -hmm. And, And they don't sit down and say, okay, that didn't go so well. Let's see what we learned from it. And, and, and therefore, learning is very powerful. And entrepreneurs naturally do that because they don't have the confidence of success in the past. Sure. Whereas companies say, you know, we've done this for 10 years, 30 years, whatever, and we don't need, you know, we don't need to experiment. And entrepreneurs know that they're, they're not standing on solid ground and they need to... Con- and if you look back, Chad, you'll find that in your life, very often you come back to things that you experienced many years before. Right. Right. So if you look at the, the founders of Airbnb, you know, they, they, they supposed, not supposedly, they did launch their business uh, in San Francisco. I think it was at, uh, there was a conference of architects, I think, and the hotel room sold out and they decided to, to rent out the mattress. But he had actually done that uh, a couple of years earlier when he had a garage sale and somebody bought an item and um, and then he sort of had a beer with the guy and he said, uh, you know, where are you staying tonight? And the guy said, well, I don't know. I haven't have a place. And, and so he said, oh, well, you can come and stay at my house. And I have a, I have a, I have a, you know, air mattress. And he let the guy stay in his house. And then when he got home, he thought to himself, what am I doing? I'm letting a total stranger spend the night <laughs> seeking discomfort. There's something there's something beautiful about pushing ourselves outside of our comfort zone and what that can really inspire inside of us. Yes, and 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 you 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 probably look back and you there's probably some point 
in your past that you learned something. I mean, you know, mm. Steve Jobs famously talked about his calligraphy classes, right? Uh, Elon Musk was, I think, two days into his PhD on battery technologies before he quit and decided to um, to wow. um, uh, start uh, PayPal. I mean, the company that became PayPal. So, what is in your past that you think triggered you, or that you you leaned on later in your life? I mean, were you a music producer in, mm. when you were young, or did you fool around with? with... Well, I don't. I get. I guess I did. I mean, I've always I've been performing from a very very young age. Yeah, like I I, I started music at about fourth fifth grade. That's when I'd start okay. playing and performing. Um, but you know, that's fascinating. I don't know what I I you know. I guess I could think of one. Here's one from performing. There was something about working with improv and being on a stage and then always being characters and going on speech team that I vividly remember having a, a just a good sense of how to walk in a room and immediately adjust and be exactly what needs to be in that space to coexist yep. and to make sure that everyone, you know, like my, my observation skills and my ability to adjust my personality and persona because I had explored so many emotions of a human. I think mm -hmm. that is one thing that I heavily can rely on and pull on because for me, it's interesting when I give an interview, I'm not, I don't, I guess I, I sort of allow my emotional instinct based on what someone says to sort of guide where I go next. I try not to be like, Oh, because of this, this means I should go here. I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. wh what do I, where do I feel I should go? And I think, I think mm -hmm. a lot of that comes from that interplay and being so uh, open to exploring that as a performer. So, so Chad, I didn't put you on the spot then. Where does moral compass come from? Because, you know, I have a take on entrepreneurs. So entrepreneurs, we, I mean, I feel are amoral. Ah, you know, so they, so they, don't, they don't have, they're not driven by any particular morality. Mm -hmm. And so you can't say that, oh, an entrepreneur will always do the right thing because for him, his company, his success is very important. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, uh, as, as Peter Thiel, I think famously said that, in the day when there are robots running the world, they're not going to stample and trample on Anwar because they don't like Anwar. It just happened that Anwar was in the way and their algorithm said that yeah. their path is more important than his and so they trample on him. So they're amoral, basically. You know, they're amoral. So when yeah. is morality, when is morality when, whose responsibility is it? Is it, God, is it, is it God-fearing? Is it something your parents have to set into you? Is it your school? That's fascinating. See, I don't, I don't necessarily think... I think the only thing that holds our morality is our personal free will. I think that okay. is the only thing that holds our, our morality in place. Because if you think about it, morality... It's so varied, right? There, there's not someone might do something like, for example, someone in a situation where they have no food, no resources. And specifically, I, I refer to Stalin during during what he was doing in Russia. Yes. I mean, the parents would choose sometimes <clears throat> to eat the children just to survive because they knew that child could not bear the uh, the growth that it needed to, to in order to survive. And so I really that question pushes me so often because I think about some of the most traumatic turmoils and, and devastating periods of society and what got those people through. And really all it is, I, at the end of the day, what I can tend to see and what I, I commonly find is 
the 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 free will to pursue that there could be something further or there could be a different outcome uh-huh. is the only thing that drives to set a baseline of morality in my opinion so you mean that there should be a good outcome yeah like i i think i, I guess i guess i don't know i i i think morality just i really don't think morality i guess would be it's just something you do because you have the choice to do it i don't know i guess <laughs> but it could be it could be you like you know killing cats or you're killing dogs or whatever um, sure um, you know it's a it's a tough one right so yeah i mean there there is a very interesting author uh, israeli born author psychologist i think uh, okay. teaches at university in in israel by the name of um Yuval Noah Harari <clears throat> and Yuval's first book was Sapiens and he made a he basically said that you know the human being survived because we we are two th- we we have two things we can work collectively with people we don't know right and the second thing is that we believe in delayed gratification and so he said that human beings survive because they know that if they 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 understand the concept that if you do something today you get a benefit tomorrow sure. and he said animals don't understand this right so he said that if you fill a stadium you know if you if you go and watch uh uh the nba i mean there was a surprise win this year right so if you fill the nba stadium with uh, monkeys you'd have riot right because you can't convince the monkeys that they need to sit next to another monkey and everybody needs to watch the game because that's what they're there for right? But human beings have this belief system that allows us to work together with people we don't know and we believe in group delayed gratification so you can't tell a monkey give me back the banana i'll give you three tomorrow i mean that's just not a concept not a concept that that monkeys know right right yeah. and, and so he said that we and and basically he says that you know we talk about this uh, we believe in god and there's no logical reason why we should believe in god right and but that sort of unites and you know so sort of puts a structure in society and then in his uh you know later books he he really talks about god being inside everybody as a moral compass yeah and 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 so you know i mean in a way i guess uh, my interpretation is he's saying um there is no god except the one that exists in you and then the question comes okay so how does this god inside you um build your moral compass so that you don't go around you know shooting everybody or whatever that's exactly uh, that's summarizing exactly the point i was just trying to to clarify there yes yeah yeah interesting and and and, and so i think the good thing about open society the good thing about the way today where everybody knows everything is that you allow societal norms to evolve and and that's mm-hmm. what yuval says right you know we've replaced a god on top who sets the rules and tells us what's right and wrong mm. with a societal understanding of what's right and wrong um and as i mean it's an interesting concept sure are you familiar with the concept of consumerism mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so what is your interpretation of consumerism in the current marketplace that we live in around us and do you think it's devastational it's a positive thing um i know when i i i'm finding myself exploring a little bit of uh, edward bernays and some of his early readings and i find um a lot of his perspective to be both 
intriguing in the fact that the man could observe it. But I also think his his morality, his internal morality was set a little bit askew in my opinion. I feel like he just, he took away, he didn't really care necessarily about making observations that were productive for society, but rather he wanted to make observations that he, that he, that he knew were like, like very easy to, 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 um, to play with or to manipulate to an mm. extent. So I'm just curious what your, your perception I mean, on it is. You know, we, until the 1980s, or I would say 1990s, early 80s, we lived in a world where assets were pretty much stable. So we didn't have what, we call, what I call the asset bubble, right? So the asset bubble came in the 80s with property, and then it's coming now in the 2000s with stocks, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So we're living in, an, in a period where lots of people have lots of money. Sure. And, and, and therefore, they can buy lots of things. And um, you have companies that want to sell lots of things. Mm-hmm. And so you have, you know, in the, in the seven, in the, in the, I would say in the 80s, you know, a lot of companies targeted young professional women. Mm. And... Um, and especially in, I don't know, in America, in America I'm not sure, but in, certainly in, in, in Asia, young professional women lived at home mm. with their parents in Asia and therefore could spend 80% of their income on themselves. And so this was, you know, marketeers saying, whoa, wonderful. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's have more makeup brands, handbags, shoes, jewelry, et cetera, et cetera. And, and driven by this uh, huge disposable income, right? Um, and and you saw that in in a, in a way with with fast fashion, right? Where you buy something, the the, the manufacturers make it cheap so you can buy it and, th- and use it and throw it away. Um, and and I used to have I had a debate with somebody once saying that. You know, their 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 view was that this is the brand's fault and the brand is at fault. And I'm like, but fast fashion wouldn't exist if you didn't buy it. And like many things in in life, right? The 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 knife can be used to to cut or to hurt, right? It's a tool or or or, or it's a tool that's positive and both destructive. So consumerism, I. Is a really tough one. Sure. Should we? Should you? Should you have a limit to how much you can buy? I mean, it's yeah. I, I I I have a wardrobe and I have a limited number of hangers. Mm. And although now I haven't worn a shirt for a while, I mean, I'm normally in a t-shirt. But when I was going to the office, I would have. And whenever I buy a shirt, I take out one that I had, and I limited my spending by the number of hangers I had. And um, and so you take out the shirt and you give it for recycling or you give it to um, a, a charitable home or whatever. So it's it's a really tough one, right? Sure. Companies want to grow, so they need to sell more. Mm. And because companies have a large cost structure, and again, it comes back to the point of being entrepreneurial, right? Is it better to have one large company employing 100 people Mm. Or is it better to have 10 small companies employing 10 people each? Mm. See, I, I, if I were to answer that question, my, my thought stems to 
migrational patterns and what mm -hmm. we see when we tend to see excessive rise in population. Um, and a lot of theorists who believe that as we push towards 2040, 2050, um, if populations were to increase at dramatic rates, we would start to see major cities actually crumble infrastructure-wise, and we would see societies start to go to more small community focus. So in my opinion, I, I feel like in anticipation of evolutionary structure in regards to population, and also to, I think for sustainability and longevity, I, I like the strategy of smaller and allowing, allowing more diversity into. Yeah. So, so if you take the example of 100 people working for one company and 10 people working for 10 companies, mm. you can imagine that <clears throat> the, the, the 100 people working for one company need to spend a lot more on infrastructure and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, then the 10 people working in 10, in 10 companies, right? Mm. So the 10 people, the small company doesn't need so much formality, so much structure, so much investment. Mm. And in, in some respects, when labor doesn't become such a big factor, it could be that the 10-man company is more productive than the 100-man company, right? So your, your brother's business or the local ice cream parlor that makes on-premise mm. and competes with Baskin and Robbins or the local coffee shop that makes on-premise and grinds on-premise and competes with Starbucks, right? You could make the argument that the, the smaller businesses collectively are more productive than the one large business. Mm. And, and to your point on, on migrations, maybe that's what the pandemic is teaching us, mm. that we don't have to all work in the city. And if you look at property prices in the suburbs, I mean, my son works in San Francisco. Holy and, cow, uh, talk, talk about a raise in prices. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, you know, I, I'm just blown away by by how expensive a city is. But in the last one year, rents have gone down. Yeah. And in contrast, Chicago, rents have gone up because it's, it's no, sort, of, it sort of normalized because you don't, I mean, a lot of people that he works with have decided that they just leave San Francisco, right? Go live with their parents, go live with uh, their partners, you know, mm -hmm. find a bigger place because nobody, he hasn't gone to work for, I mean, physical work for maybe since, I think, February last year, wow. and he, re he, he, he moved apartments recently, and I asked him, I said, so how far or close is it to your office? Mm -hmm. And he said, hey, Pops, I never really thought about it, mm -hmm. <laughs> because I haven't, been to the, I haven't been to the office for a year and a half. <laughs> so, so what difference does it make? Is it, you know, he said, no, I like the neighborhood, I like the apartment, so we didn't decide to move there, right? So, so... You know, in a way, the pandem pandemic is uh, reshaping the way we live. And, and, and that's why I say there are three sort of mega trends happening driven by entrepreneurs, right? Mm. The way that we learn has completely changed, right? So the idea of, you know, I'll go and get a book and I'm going to spend six months studying before I do it is out mm. of the window. You know, I'm going to talk to a few people. I'm going to listen to some podcasts. I'm going to try it. And if it works, great. If it doesn't work, I'll try it again and I'll get it done, right? So the way we learn is completely changed, right? Then this, the way that we work has changed, right? So mm. I don't have to physically go to the office. I don't have to work for a company down the road. I can work for a company, you know. I mean, there are lots and lots of opportunities. And I don't have to work for, for time anymore. I can work for output. Mm. And so the ones that are more confident and competent 
say, don't pay me for the hours. And companies are also turning around saying, I don't want to pay for hour, I want to pay for output. Right? Right. So the way we work has dramatically changed. People are willing to work for output. It used to be a bad thing, right, in the sweatshop days. Mm-hmm. And then Uber came along and it looked and it became okay to work for our, for for our productivity, right? Mm-hmm. So the way that we learn has changed, the way that we work has changed, and finally the way that we invest has changed. Mm-hmm. So people are saying, why should I invest 10 years of my life in this company? I just start my own company. Right. You know, why should I invest in a property? You know, I invest in bitcoins, you know, why should I invest in stocks that pay dividends? I mean. Who wants a three percent annualized return? Right. Um, you know, I. I mean, I'll invest in 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 the next startup, right? And so you see so much money going into equity funding, mm. which never happened even ten years ago. Sure. You know, so so how we learn, how we work, how we invest is, you know, dramatically changing the world. Mm. Do you believe that our current markets are set up in a way that is incentivizing additional competition and innovation? Or do you believe, and I'm talking on a global scale, yes. um, do you believe that, or do you believe it's the opposite? I don't think there's a, there's a fixed view. I don't think that, um, I don't think there's a fixed view. So there are some things where, you know, if you look at the GPU cards, right? So um, the GPU cards are primarily coming um, from one company, mm. um, Nvidia, right? So, and, and Nvidia, I think, I think it's called Nvidia. I think is uh, the leading player in, in graphics cards, and it is an unusual company. Um, because it was started by a Taiwanese entrepreneur, and I think he still is the CEO. It's mm-hmm. rare for a rare for a company to have such a long standing. So when you when you when you have so much when you have the requirement of so much investment, then of course there's a barrier to competition. Of course, but other than that. I, I don't think the you can stop competition anymore. You know, in the in the in the I tell I'll give you an example in the eighteen, I think in in the eighteen nineties, Rockefeller controlled I think ninety percent of the refining capacity in America. Yeah, and that, the prime that's very accurate. The, pri, the the primary product was kerosene, right? This is before the automobile was invented, so kerosene was used for lighting, etc. Sure. So America, because of Drake finding the oil, America controlled, I mean, and, and Rockefeller steadfastly buying up all the refining capacity and creating his own uh, transportation hub uh, using the uh, tank cars, on, on which ran, I mean, basically he had tanks instead of barrels to move oil. Uh, he controlled, I think, 90% of the refining capacity in America. And America had 85% of the global market share for kerosene. Mm. The balance, the, the primary competitor was Russia. And I think Russia had 15% or something like that. And when Russian oil tried to come into America, uh, Rockefeller 
campaigned for import duties. So America stopped imports, Russian imports from coming in legislatively, right? Mm. Um, so in those days, you could legislate and get away with it. Today, you can't stop competition. Mm. And people are willing to, you know, entrepreneurs are willing to give up that corner office uh, dream uh, in return for flexibility, for less, maybe less money, but the potential of a windfall, less mm. money, but the potential of a windfall, sitting right with what they feel, like, you know, as you quite rightly said, doing something that they want to do. Mm. Um, you, it's too late to say, you know, I mean, as I say, the, the, the arrow has left the bow. I mean, you, you, can't, you can't stop competition anymore. Sure. I like that perspective. Yeah. I, 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 I think I initially asked that question and I was thinking, I wasn't thinking broad enough on the concept of it, but when I look at it from a uh, global scale, I do, I do think there is a, a decent amount of competition in the market. I wanted to get from your perspective. Um, I know there's always nuance to, to, to these thoughts, but of the major players, China, Russia, and America, what is a Malaysian perspective on them currently in 2021? The Malaysian perspective is really irrelevant. I mean, we're we're a, I mean, in a sense, we're a small country. Mm. I because we because I mean, I guess we are more international in our thinking and our 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 resources and knowledge base. I think that there is obviously a tussle between America and China in terms of who's going to be, you know, the 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 global. Power, Economic right? superpower. Sure. Yeah. So before industrialization, the global GDP, I mean, before the invention of the machine, the global GDP was, I think, 40% China and 40% India because it was a, mm. it was a, a global economy of uh, raw materials. Sure. Right. And then these two countries got left behind after the steam engine came in and mechanization came in. And then um, these two countries basically went into a decline in terms of percentage of GDP. Now we have a new world where America is realizing that, you know, 20 years of investment in the arms business mm. isn't paying a dividend. And China is saying that our 20 years of not investing in arms and investing in roads and infrastructure is paying a huge dividend, Right. Right. So it's too late. It's too late for this path to be corrected. Mm. I mean, it's just you just have to live it out, right? I mean, China mm. made the China made the right bet. They moved four hundred million people out of poverty, mm. and they've modernized the country. I mean, there's just no no words to describe, you know, how well they've come along, right? Sure. So, so they've equipped themselves and their population with different tool sets, mm. whereas America has chosen to equip part of their population with, with the arms industry. And, and it's very hard to roll that back, right? Right. Yeah. So, so I think you, you know, we talked about the three companies, right? The DNAs of Google, Amazon, and, and Microsoft, right? So these are the DNAs of the two countries, right? I mean, that is what it is, right? Mm. This country has invested in infrastructure, roads, etc., and this country has invested in obviously some technologies, but a lot of it in arms, right? So now you question yourself: What are you capable of, capable of doing, right? So that's 
you, you park that thought in terms of your DNA. Sure. One thing that Americans don't understand in the dealing with the Chinese mm. is that because Americans are an individualistic society, you rely on the general population to say, stand with me. Mm. China is a collective society. Right. They can count on every Chinese standing with them. Right. So if America and China have a dispute, it's a dispute between the American government and not the government of China, but the people of China. Mm. And that's something the Americans just don't seem to understand. Wow. That, yeah. You know, so, so in America, it's mm. like, yes, the government is upset with that government. But there are lots right. of American companies who have investments in China and they're quite happy to work with China. Right. Right. But the, for the Chinese, because they come from a socialistic and Mao is not so long ago. Right. You know, I mean, it's like if you go back to, to, to America, right? And you go to some parts and you have these wonderful movies on the hillbillies, etc. Right. <laughs> if, yep. if I pick a fight with you, it's not that you're picking a fight with me, you're picking a fight with my whole family. Right. Right. So that's a concept that, that is understood, right? And so the same thing, when you pick a fight with China, you're not picking a fight with the Chinese government. You're picking a fight, and every Chinese, or not, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but every Chinese national feels that you're picking a fight with him. That's so fascinating. I've never thought about... Uh... The idea that the the collective mentality that the people like we always think of it from a top down perspective here we think oh they have a socialistic regime they have they they have a power hold so it's them controlling the people and and we see it as because we have an individual personality like oh that's not a good thing and that people probably don't want to subscribe to that but just don't know that when really there's probably a large majority of nationalists or people who just who actually like have fully that is that is just the way of being and that is and that is it and i think that is interesting too if we if we we did see a uh, a a war begin between the two countries i it would be it would be so interesting to see with so much uh dissonance in the society here in america right now how we would come together and how we how we would even where would that conversation even begin to to happen because I feel like right now in our current sphere, or at least what our media is trying to portray for us here in America, it's like, oh, we're we're def we're diffracted, we're we're a separated society, and it's it's something that I hope through having this show too is like when people hear conversations with different people of different backgrounds and different beliefs that like it's still okay to have these conversations because tolerance is one thing that has gone down so heavily since COVID hit in America. Yep. You know, I mean, there, there isn't going to be a war, so that's not really the question. But, you know, Chad, to your point, I, I, and I tell you another difference between China and the rest of the world, mm. which is in China, they have a very rigid civil service structure, right? So I think every year they have maybe, they, <clears throat> I think they admit 900,000 people into the, into the government, Okay. And the government could be, you know, you could go into university, you could go into the army, you could go into um, uh, um, uh, provincial government. So they, they, have, they have sort of path laid out for these sort of 900,000 people that they 
higher. You can't go into politics. Mm. So the Chinese view, I mean, from my perspective, is you first build competence and then you go into politics. Whereas in, in democratic societies, you are political first, then you get into power, and then you run something. Right? So true. So, so people who get into power have two handicaps in, in outside of China. They have two handicaps, right? So the first handicap is they don't have the competence of running because all they've ever run is an election campaign, mm. right? Yeah. So they don't have the competence of running a PNL of people, et cetera, et cetera, of, you know, making investments, et cetera. So, so the people that go into politics don't have this competence, right? So that's mm. one, one drawback that they have. The second competence they don't have is how do you manage people who don't agree with you? Mm. So if you look at a political campaign, everybody who works for you loves you. Right. Right? How do you manage some... And, and people who don't love you, you can avoid them. Mm. Right? right? So you don't build the competence of managing people who don't agree with you. And, and this is what this is the problem that comes about when you are politically first and not competent space, right? So suddenly you are in charge of an organization where 50% of the people not just don't agree with you, 50% of people that you manage want to get rid of you. Right. And you don't you never build that competence, right? Because you you're just used to everybody who works for you loves you. This is it's eliciting all of the same feelings I have when uh learning about Socrates and his idea that everyone had to become a philosopher first before participating in Socratic discussion in a political atmosphere. But before that, you had to become a thinker for yourself. Yes. That's, you know, I think that's so lost and that's, wow, what a, what a fantastic observation. Yeah. I completely agree with you. Thank you. Um, we're getting very close to the end of our time here. So I have, I have three questions yeah. that I ask oh, yeah. all okay, of my guests. Do. Okay. Right. Let's go. Yeah. Cool. The first one is what is your definition of happiness? My definition of happiness is something that you feel comfortable doing every day and you derive joy from it. Very nice. Okay, I like that. The next one is, what do you believe is the meaning of life? I honestly have no idea. And okay. there are many days where you think, is there any point? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> truly, truly. Yeah, that, that's one that... That's, a, that's one I always like asking because I'm just so curious myself. I really don't have my answer either. Um, and then the last one that I always guess every guest, if you had one piece of wisdom you have to give to someone who's listening that might be young and they have no idea where they're going in life next, or they might be old and they're having a midlife crisis and they're just not really sure what to do next, what is one piece of wisdom for that person who is listening that you would leave for them? Experiment. Mm. Just experiment with different things, with different experiences. I love that. Experiment. And, and that's the thing that I would tell parents, which unfortunately I don't think I did with my kids, mm. is allow them to experiment different things. Yeah, that's a fantastic sentiment. I want to give you an opportunity right before we finish up here. Do you have anything that you would like to plug where people can check you out, where they can find you? You know, I love having conversations. So thank you, uh, Chad, for looking me up. I'm easiest found on LinkedIn. 
uh, you know, my name is Anwar Jumaboy. And you can find me on LinkedIn and also on my URL, which is anwarjumaboy.com. Beautiful. Well, thank you, Anwar, so much for your time today. And uh, it's been a very insightful conversation. Um, your wisdom and your time has just made me so excited to take the opportunity to go back, edit this footage, and get to reflect on this amazing conversation. Thanks for having me, Chad. Of course. All right, folks, All right. this has been another edition of A Humanistic Perspective. Thank you for joining us. And as always, have a great day. All right.